I'm going to begin this morning with a question. How do you get to heaven? What's your plan? How are you going to get to heaven? If you're Jeff Bezos, what you do is you start a space exploration company called Blue Origin, take the billions of dollars you've made off of us from Amazon, and you just build a rocket and you literally launch yourself there. Sure, by now you've heard of the 11-minute suborbital flight into outer space. Their, uh, their rocket, called the New Shepard, reached an altitude of 351,210 feet. Now, just to put that in perspective, when you're on a normal airplane, you're usually cruising at around 35 to 40,000 feet. So they are 300,000 feet higher than what you're used to at cruising altitude. And it's just enough to cross over that line between um, Earth and space. And they were able to kind of peek into the, the, the initial realm of outer space. And Jeff Bezos, as he reflected on that journey, said it was the greatest day of his life so far. It was a milestone moment in his lifelong journey to reach the heavens. Now, the problem with the Jeff Bezos approach is, first of all, none of us can afford that. The second is that his aim is far too low. Though he's gone higher than most people, 350,000 feet above sea level is still a long way off from heaven. Or take Michael Bloomberg, another billionaire, the former mayor of New York City. After he poured millions of his own dollars into a campaign to promote gun safety and awareness, he said, and I quote, these are his words, I'm telling you, if there's a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven, and it's not even close. The problem with the Michael Bloomberg approach is first that it's prideful and second that his standards are far too low. You see, he's basing his entrance ticket into heaven on human achievement and, and philanthropy. And the problem is they don't meet the requirements for heaven. So what about you? What is your plan to get to heaven? And I would bet that every single one of us at some point in our life has thought about that most basic question. If there is an afterlife, if there is life after death, how does someone get there? How do they get in? And there's some, maybe yourself or maybe your, some of your friends and family, but certainly there's lots of people in the world who just deny the basic premise of the question, right? They just deny the existence of a life beyond this life. So they go, look, your question I don't even need to answer it because the question itself is flawed. You're asking, how do I get into heaven? But I don't believe that there is a heaven. There isn't life after death, so I don't need a plan. The only point is to live life to the fullest because heaven is really all that we get here on earth. Some believe that there is a life after death, and they say the way to get in seems pretty basic. Human effort and achievement. Work hard. Do good. And hopefully your good outweighs your bad. And that's how you get in. And God sits up in the heavens. He looks at you and he says, man, you have tried really hard. And hopefully he gives us an A for effort. And he rewards us with entrance into heaven. Maybe with a brief trip to purgatory for good measure. Right? All the Catholics and former Catholics in the room are like, I remember that. And I'm certain that there are some here today who no matter what I say right now are convinced 
that no matter what you do, God will never let you in. They're going, Pastor, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've looked at. You don't know what goes on in the thoughts in my head. But God does, and he is absolutely, without a doubt, not letting me in. Heaven is a closed door for me. Our passage this morning brings clarity into the fog and confusion that often surrounds the question about how we get into heaven. We find Jacob in the passage that Mandy read in the middle of nowhere. He's all alone and he's sleeping with a stone for a pillow. And while he sleeps, God meets Jacob in a dream. And what's amazing about this passage is that the curtains of the visible realm are pulled back just for a moment. And we get to peek into what Jacob saw and what he sees is a stairway to heaven. And as we walk to, uh, in, uh, through our passage this morning, we are going to learn four things about the stairway to heaven. First, we learn that it's a stairway you can't build. The stairway to heaven is a stairway that you can't build. Second, we're going to see that it's a stairway you can't climb. The stairway to heaven is one that you can't build and you can't climb. Third, the stairway to heaven is a stairway that you don't deserve. And finally, it's a stairway that's not a stairway. So what we're going to see in this passage today is that there is a stairway to heaven, but you can't build it, you can't climb it, you don't deserve it, and it's not really a stairway. And if that's not crystal clear, I promise you by the end, it will be. But if you can grasp those four truths this morning, you too can get to heaven. So let's start in chapter 28, verse 10, as we learn the first truth, that the stairway to heaven is a stairway you can't build. Remember again the word of God, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, these first couple of verses sets the scene. It's the setting of our story. And Moses, in just a few broad strokes, paints a very vivid picture for us. And if we focus in for a minute, we can see Jacob there. First, we see that Jacob is leaving Beersheba and he's headed to Haran. Now, we don't even know, you know, you may not even know what those places are, but Beersheba is in the promised land, the land that God has promised to give his family, and Haran is outside of the promised land. And so why is he leaving? If, if, if you were given the promised land, why would you ever leave? So why is Jacob leaving? Well, if you remember from the last time, I know it's been a few weeks since we were in the book of Genesis, but if you go back in chapter 27, you find that Jacob has deceived his father Isaac and he's stolen the blessing from his brother Esau. Earlier, he'd already tricked uh, uh, Esau out of his birthright. So he basically had become the older son. And now he's tricked his father. Remember, he puts on the goat skin. He wears Esau's clothing. He dresses up like his brother to trick his father Isaac, who's going blind, in order to steal the blessing. Now, you might think the blessing, what is that? Is that just some like pronouncement of good words? No. In this family, the blessing is not some arbitrary thing. 
especially in Jewish Hebrew culture, to, to receive the blessing was a very big deal. And this family in particular, the blessing is uh, of utmost importance because this is the promised line. This is the chosen family. This is the one family on earth that God is going to bring about his redemption plan. And it's a big deal to be the covenant leader in this family. And this blessing has been passed down from, Isaac, from Abraham to Isaac. And now because Jacob has stolen that blessing, he is the new covenant leader. He's picking up the mantle of leadership for the covenant family. And if you dig in a bit further into Jacob's origin story, you find, if you remember, that, that his father Isaac favored Esau over him. Think about what that would do to a child when it's just so clear so flagrant, that kind of favoritism. What that does is it leaves someone with deep father wounds. Every time that J uh, Isaac pronounces his love and affection for Esau, you can just hear Isaac or, or, or Jacob waiting to hear those same kind of words of affirmation and it never comes. He's cut, he's wounded. Every time Isaac draws Esau in and says, I love you, my boy, Jacob's over there longing for that same kind of affection. He's grown up desperate for his father's love and words of affirmation. And it doesn't take a PhD in psychology to know that the absence of, uh, of a father's love kills a person's sense of worth and value. We're also told in verses 41 to 45 of chapter 27 that because Jacob had stolen the blessing, Esau hated him. The Bible says that his only comfort from having the blessing taken from him was that he began to plot and plan his brother's death. Think about that. Of all his anger, all his anguish about uh, 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 being supplanted as the older brother, his only solace came from thinking about how he was going to kill his brother. And if you remember, Esau is a skilled hunter. It's like one of the one things we know about him, that he was skilled with a bow. He knew how to kill an animal, which basically makes Esau an assassin. He knows how to hunt and kill. Rebekah finds out about his plan, Jacob's mother, and tells Jacob, if you want to live, you had better get out of here. Why don't you go take safety in Haran with my relatives, your relatives, your kinsmen. Uh, your uncle Laban lives there. Why don't you go and stay with him? And maybe there you can find a wife and settle there and give Esau some time to cool off. That's why he's leaving Haran. Second, we find out that Jacob is in the middle of nowhere. If you saw that, it said that Jacob came to a certain place. There's one thing Moses is always careful to do. He's very careful to tell us the names of the places that the patriarchs and the, the people in these stories come to, right? Every time they come to a new place, we're told the name of it. But here Moses just says he comes to a certain place. The sun had set and he just stops, which means he's in the middle of nowhere. This place doesn't have a name because it, it, it's not a place of significance yet. There's no major city here. There's no important river here. There's no major well. There's nothing special or important about this place. Because if it, if it was, it would have had a name. But it doesn't have a name. He comes to a, a place in the middle of nowhere. This place is not on the map. 
And third, we find out Jacob has nothing. You can see that by the very fact that he had to use a stone for a pillow. Let me ask you this. Under what circumstances do you reach for a stone as your pillow? When you have absolutely nothing else. I mean, if he'd had an extra shirt or a tunic, certainly he would have used that as an extra pillow. He would have given anything to have the my pillow guy pass by and hand him an extra pillow. This is a guy who has nothing. He is all alone. Do you notice nobody goes with him? When he leaves Beersheba, he goes 100% by himself. He's a leader without any followers. He's now the new covenant head of the family and nobody goes with him. And what's more, his grandfather Abraham, his grandmother Sarah, his father Isaac, and his mother Rebekah have all had personal encounters with God and Jacob has had none of them. They've all met the Lord and Jacob hasn't. He's heard the stories, he's heard the promises, but he's never met the God of the promises. His life has fallen apart. He is on the run in the middle of nowhere with no one and nothing. He's supposed to be the leader of this new chosen family. He's been promised a rich inheritance, promises of God overflowing into his life. And yet here he is alone, empty handed, running on his life, running for his life. And you can almost imagine the thoughts going through his head as he settles in for the night in the middle of nowhere with a stone for a pillow. Some promises, huh? Where are the promises of God? And it's here that the Lord meets him in a dream. Verse 12, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Now let's stop here and start unpacking this dream. First, we're told that Jacob sees a ladder with angels ascending and descending. Now, if what you have in your mind right now is a six-foot painter's ladder with hallmark baby angels walking up and down on it, you're not even in the ballpark of what Jacob saw. A better translation of this Hebrew term here is a stairway, okay? And think big. This is a towering stairway that extends from the very lowest depths of the earth all the way to heaven, past the 351,210 feet of Jeff Bezos. This thing goes all the way up, and there's angels coming and going on it. In fact, later on in the passage, Jacob's going to say, this is the gate of heaven. And that phrase right there, doesn't do a whole lot for us, but if you were the first readers reading this passage, when you heard Jacob say the gate of heaven, you know what would have immediately popped up in your mind? The Tower of Babel. Here's why. Because the word Babel translated means the gate of the gods. So here's Jacob going, this is, this is God's gate. This is the gate of heaven. The Tower of Babel was this ancient Near Eastern ziggurat you don't need to know what that word means, except that it was a huge temple with a ramping stairway. And imagine a big square base and then a smaller square base on top of it with a stairway that leads to that square base. And then on top of that, a smaller uh, square base with a stairway that leads up to that with uh, 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 cascading uh, stairs that go all the way up. And this was like a, an, uh, an artificial mountain 
Because it was believed that the gods lived up in the heavens. And so the closer you could climb your way to God, the better you could worship him. And so you could bring, you could carry your sacrifices up there. You could do rites of penance and sacrifice. All of them climbing your way to get closer and closer to the gods so that you could worship them. So they could see you. It was a way to climb your way to the top to worship God. And if you remember from Genesis 11, the tower was built to reach the heavens. But you remember it fell short, right? Because God had to come down. Oh, what are they doing down there? He had to come down to see their little tower. But that's not what Jacob saw. Jacob saw a tower that actually reached and connected heaven to earth. And verse 12 says that this stairway was set up, which means it was built. But Jacob didn't build it. The Babylonians didn't build it, which means someone else did. And if you look in the beginning of verse 13, we see who built the stairway. We see whose stairway it is because the Lord himself is there. And Jacob knows this is God's stairway. And you remember on the stairway, he sees angels coming and going. He could have seen hundreds, maybe even thousands of angels coming up and going down, coming up and going down. Now, if you read through the Bible, you come across these angels, there's a couple things you're going to see. First is angels are magnificent and they're overwhelming. In fact, what happens almost every single time when a person meets an angel in the Bible? They're terrified. And one of the first words out of the angel's mouth is, do not fear or you should be afraid we're about to kill you. <laughs> they're terrifying. And what do angels do? Well, they're royal emissaries. They're sent out to deliver the message and to fulfill the mission of God. They serve at the pleasure of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In other words, when angels are on the move, it means that God is on the move. So what Jacob is getting a picture of here is God is on the move. You see, angels don't come and go with their own agendas. They're not coming down to earth to go on vacation. It's not like they're going, hey, Gabriel, let's go down to Paris and check out the Eiffel Tower. That's not what angels do. They don't come up with their own plans. Their sole purpose is to carry out the mission of God. They have marching orders from the king of kings. And so as Jacob sees angels coming and going... He's getting a glimpse into that invisible reality that is going on, that God is at work. You see, there is a visible reality and an invisible reality. We're almost always aware of what's happening visibly around us, and we're almost always completely unaware of the invisible reality. And Jacob is getting a glimpse that even when it seems like nothing is happening, even when it seems like God isn't doing anything, that God is on the move. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I think we think that God is like sitting up in heaven on his big royal throne, bored, not really doing much, maybe like tinkering around in matters of human history. But friends, that couldn't be further from the truth. God is at work sustaining and holding the universe together right now. The reason our universe doesn't just fall to pieces and disintegrate is because God is holding it together and sustaining it. 
He's also superintending, look at me, every single detail of human history so that all things come to be and come to pass that fulfill his exact purpose and end. There's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as chance. There's only God at work weaving together every single facet of human history so that all things work out for his good pleasure and purpose, regardless of how aware of it we are. It reminds me of a scene in 2 Kings chapter 6. Maybe you remember that. Elijah, who's the prophet of God, is surrounded on every side by the king of Syria. And they've got armies and chariots. And they've got this small little band of would-be warriors. And Elijah's servant is standing next to him and he is terrified. He's probably wet his pants already. And he looks over at Elijah and Elijah's just calm. He's just standing there like, no problem. And his servant's going, how can you be so calm and sure? Like, those guys are going to kill us. And Elijah says in chapter 6, verse 16 to his servant, he says, do not be afraid. He says, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you can imagine the servant doing like a quick count. And he's like, um, Elijah, I think you've, I think you've miscounted because there's way more of them than there are of us. Then Elijah prayed in verse 17. Elijah prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Elijah could see both the visible and the invisible. He could see that though it looked like the, the army of Syria outnumbered them, he knew beyond them, actually outnumbering and encompassing them, was God's army of chariots of fire. The servant saw that God was on the move. God was at work regardless of what he could see. And friends, what I'm trying to tell you is Jacob saw something that we need to see today. Regardless of what you can see happening with your eyes around you, there is an invisible realm that is just as real as the chairs you're sitting in right now. God, uh, Jacob was all alone. He was on the run with nothing to his name. And here he sees God is on the move. God was at work even when he couldn't see it. Have you ever felt like Jacob? Regardless of how you got into that situation, whether, whether it was a result of sinful, foolish choices or unjust suffering or things just not going your way, you feel abandoned, empty, and hopeless. You feel like you're going to bed with a stone for a pillow. And Jacob sees that even when we're blind and unaware to the work and purposes of God, that doesn't mean he isn't working and he isn't moving. And friends, this is such good news. Jacob was getting a glimpse that God does not sit idle. He is not menially involved in the workings of human history. It's true, sin has caused a chasm between heaven and earth. But God has built a stairway. 
that reaches from heaven to earth and he is at work to undo all that sin and death have destroyed and not just the ultimate things like how do we get to heaven but the very smallest details of your life. So when you're waiting for that phone call, when you're waiting for that job situation to change, when you're waiting to finally hear that piece of good news, all of it, and it seems like God doesn't care at all. Angels are ascending and descending. God is at work. This is a stairway that God builds. This is God's kingdom. There is a stairway to heaven, but we don't build it. God does. There's more good news. Look with me at verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it. That's the, the ladder, the stairway. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now, when you look at this, maybe you're looking in your Bibles. If you see right next to where it says above it, you might have like a footnote right there. That's because in your Bibles, they're, they're, they're trying to help you know that this can also be translated as beside him. So the Hebrew phrase for this, above it or beside him, the grammar could go either way. And I think given the context, beside him fits the context better. Why is that? Well, in the next couple of verses, the Lord is going to tell Jacob that he is with him. He says, I am with you. That sounds a whole lot more like beside him, doesn't it? And will not leave him. And Jacob will even say later on, the Lord is in this place. Not just way up there, but right here in this place, that this, right here, the grand, ground he's standing on is the gate of heaven. Here's the point. Here's why it matters. Because God has built the stairway, but not only that, he has come down that stairway to meet Jacob where he is. This is critical for us to get. He doesn't build a tower uh, uh, to the heavens to find God and doesn't expect Jacob to make this long pilgrimage to ascend the tower to meet him there. God is not at the top of the tower saying, hey, Jacob, you old rascal, get your life together. Solve your problems. Make amends. Stop lying. Stop deceiving everybody. Do some good work. And when you've become a respectable lovable patriarch, then you can come on up here to the heavens. That's not what we find, is it? Instead, God builds a stairway and he comes down the stairs to meet Jacob where he is. I mean, when Jacob goes to sleep, do we find him crying out to God? It's like, Lord, my head's on the stone. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm on the run. Help. You don't find him crying out to God. Have we seen Jacob show one ounce of remorse for his patterns of deception? Not once. Has he taken one single shred of responsibility for his part in his family's dysfunction? No. And despite all of that, God comes down the stairway, unsought in all of his holiness, in all of his majesty, in all of his worthiness, and stands right next to Jacob. See, into Jacob's nothingness, God speaks. God comes right next to him, and what he hears is exactly what he needed to hear. Let me remind you of what, of what God said. He said in verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. 
The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Into Jacob's loneliness and abandonment, the Lord says, I am with you and I will not leave you. Into his insecurity, into feeling defenseless, the Lord says, I will keep you. I will guard you wherever you go. Into his poverty and his nothingness, the Lord says, I will give you a rich inheritance of land, seed, and prosperity. In other words, God promises to give him the gift of his presence, the security of his protection, and the abundance of his provision. Jacob finally gets that personal encounter with the Lord, and it's nothing like he anticipated or expected. He brings nothing to the table, and God brings everything and says, Jacob, I am with you. I am for you, and I will bless you. Do you hear what he said? I will accomplish my purposes. Nothing will stop me. Everything I have promised will come to pass. Now think about Jacob. Who is he? He's a manipulator. He's a deceiver. He's a guy who wants to control every outcome and circumstance, right? He has schemed his whole life to control his destiny and to achieve his ambitions. And what did he have to show for it? Nothing. He's all alone on the run without a pillow to his name. And here is God coming to him and saying, I'm the God of your grandfather Isaac. I mean, uh, Abraham, I'm the God of your father Isaac. And now I've come, guess what? To be your God too. Do you know every other religion says you've got to climb the stairways to God? That's basically every other religion. They say, look, God is standing at the top of the stairway. He's waiting for you. He wants you to come. So go do your sacrifice. And when you do, you climb a step. When you say a prayer, guess what? You climb another step. When you serve the poor, congratulations. You get to go up another step. Tell a lie, Uh uh-oh, got to go back a step, right? And it's this back and forth, up and down, a couple steps up, a couple steps back. Now you got to do some penance to make up for that lost step. And I'm really not trying to oversimplify this, but this is the basic structure of how every single religion works. I'm not making this up. Hinduism has four paths to salvation. You pick your path based on uh, your personality type and your inclinations, and you got to walk that path to salvation. Islam has what? Five pillars. You got to do all those things in order to make it. Buddhism has the eightfold path. I mean, it's the very fact that they all have numbers associated with it. It's talking about how you climb the stairway to get to heaven. Even secularism, which rejects a God and a heaven, still has a creed that you've got to adopt, doesn't it? In order to be judged by society as someone who's made it and someone who's reached it, you've got to do those steps. 
Every other religion says this. There is a stairway to God. There is a path of enlightenment. There is societal approval if you can be good enough to climb your way to the top. Christianity is beautifully different. It's about grace, not works. The stairway to heaven is not a way to ascend up to God where you meet helpful guides and books along the way to encourage you to get up there. It's a stairway that God comes down into the nowhere places to meet nobodies like you and me who have absolutely nothing. If you're sitting here going, God, I have nothing to offer God. I'm a complete nobody. There is no reason why God should ever want me or love me. Then friends, you are in good news because it's for those kinds of people that God comes down the stairs to meet. He loves it. It's who he is. This is grace. God comes to you and me because we could never climb our way to him. Heaven would be a lonely place if God was waiting for people to make their way to the top. But instead, God comes all the way down the stairs, coming beside us, standing with us in his unconditional love. And he says, I know who you are. I see you. And what's more, I love you. I know everything you've done. I know everything you've seen. I know all that's been done to you. And I love you. That's why I came all the way down here. Friends, there is a stairway to heaven. But you cannot build it. And you can't climb it. So instead, God built it. And he walked down it to meet us where we are. There's a third lesson we have to learn. Not only is it a stairway we can't build and a stairway we can't climb, but it's a stairway we don't deserve. Look at Jacob's response, verse 16. Jacob woke up from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob... He wakes up and he starts to verbally process his dream out loud. I love Jacob. I see a lot of myself in him. I'm a verbal processor as well. If people won't listen, that's fine. I just talk to myself. And that's what Jacob's doing. He's like, oh my gosh, the Lord is in this place. This is incredible. He's come to this realization that God is with him in this nowhere place. And he's awestruck and terrified at the same time. And it's the right response. He's awestruck. Why? Because he's just seen that God, that, that God is going to transform his life. God has made all these promises to him. He's had an encounter with the Lord. And it begins this transformation. He realizes when God said, every, I'm going to be with you everywhere he goes. He's realizing that everywhere I go is going to become a Bethel. Right? The word Bethel means a house of God. God is saying, I'm going to be with you wherever you go, which means wherever he goes becomes a new house of God. He realizes that's incredible. And with his presence, God has promises protection and provision. And Jacob is overwhelmed by the grace of God. That's why he's like, how awesome is this place? He's also terrified because he knows he doesn't deserve it. Remember his life so far? What do we know about him? 
He's a deceiver. He's a heel grabber. He's a guy that takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't matter who he lies to, steals from, cheats. He's going to get what he wants. And in the presence of God, he is fully aware that God is holy and he is not. That's the right response. When you realize God is holy and you're not, there should be an initial sense of terror. Like, whoa, I don't belong here. And this terror comes from the tension of not knowing how a holy God could live with an unholy man like himself. So what does he do? He takes that stone pillow and he sets it up as a pillar. And he, t- and he names this unnamed place Bethel, which means the house of God. And he makes a vow. You remember it? He says, if God will be with me and he'll keep me in his way. And he'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth. Here's his response. He said, Lord, you've come all the way down to meet me here. And I'm really excited about it. That's why I'm setting up this little pillar that you might be excited about that too. And so if you really will be with me and you really will keep me, and you really are going to feed me and clothe me and bring me back to this land, then you will be my God. In other words, he's saying, God, if you really will keep all those promises, then the least I could do is worship you. Can you believe it? After all the grace he's been shown, after all the promises that have been given to him, he still feels this need to bargain with God. He still has his doubts. He still wrestles. He still struggles. He still fails. And you know why I love Jacob so much? Because he reminds me of me. I'm just like him. I'm just like Jacob. I'm still hedging bets. I'm still going, okay, Lord, if you really will do all that for me, then here's what I will do for you. Jacob doesn't deserve this stairway. He doesn't deserve to be standing in the presence of God. He doesn't deserve to be at the gate of God. He doesn't deserve to be in the house of God. And guess what? None of us do. That's the point. And if God would walk down the stairway of heaven to meet him, then it must mean he'll do the same for you and me. That's why today is such good news. Because we're just like him. One of the pastors that I look up to, his name is Ray Ortland. He's a, an older brother in the faith. And he's, uh, he planted and pastored a church named Emmanuel Church in Nashville for a number of years. And at Emmanuel, they have a mantra that they say often. And I love it. Here's how it goes. The first one is this. I am a complete idiot. People say this at church on Sunday. They go, okay, it's time for the Emmanuel mantra. And everybody in one accord says, I am a complete idiot. All that is is a recognition that I am completely undeserving of God's forgiveness and grace. I am not anything special that God would look down on me and go, well, now there's someone I want on my team. Number one, I am a complete idiot. Number two, they say my future is incredibly bright, which is a recognition that because God and his grace and forgiveness has come down to meet us, all of us in our idiotness are completely accepted, loved, forgiven, And we have a future in Christ that is beyond compare. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, it is equally true that you are a complete idiot, but at the same time, you have an incredibly bright future. And number three, anyone can get in on this. This is the reality that because grace is for nobodies like you and me who bring nothing to the table, it means all of us can receive God's grace. 
I am a complete idiot. My future, though, is incredibly bright. And anyone can get in on this. See, friends, there is a stairway to heaven. But you can't build it. You can't climb it. We certainly don't deserve it. But that doesn't stop God from coming down from heaven to earth to just simply lavish us with his grace. And there's one more truth that if we can grasp this morning, we'll see clearly the stairway to heaven. And that's this. The stairway is not really a stairway. You see Jacob, you remember Jacob in his tension of like kind of terrified, like how can a holy God live with an unholy man like myself? That tension's never resolved in Genesis 20, 28. In fact, it just kind of hangs out there. And if you're a reader of the Old Testament, you're going to find this happens all of the time. There's all these moments where God extends incredible mercy and forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. And we're always left with how. How is it that God can be just and justifier? How is it that God can just forgive sin without sweeping it under the rug? How can God punish sin and yet give life to the sinner. We see story after story of God's redeeming grace in the, in the Old Testament, but there's always this tension of how it works out and why God would do it. And that tension does not get resolved until we get to the New Testament because it's Jesus who resolves that tension. In John chapter 1, we see Philip. He's met Jesus. He's been converted to, to be a follower of Christ and he runs and tells his friend Nathaniel. And he goes to Nathaniel and he says, I, oh, oh my gosh, Nathaniel, I've met the Messiah. He's here, the long awaited one, the Savior we've been waiting for to come and deliver us. He's here. And Nathaniel's like, oh my goodness, this is the greatest news. Everyone's been waiting for it. Where did he come from? Where is he? How do you know? And he says, Nathaniel, you never believe it. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, he's saying, Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel says, Philip, don't you know Nazareth is a place of nobodies? Nothing good can come from there. If, if Messiah is going to come, he's going to come from like Jerusalem, like an important place, not Nazareth. God's not showing up in Nazareth. And Philip says, okay, why don't you come and see for yourself? And so Nathaniel says, okay, I'll go and see what all the fuss is about. That way we can settle this matter. And we pick up in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him and said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So here's what's happening. Nathaniel comes up. Jesus says, hey, you're a guy who doesn't mince words. And Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? You don't know me. I've never met you before. How do you Come off saying you know about me and my character and kind of how I'm wired. It'd be like you walking up to someone and they go, oh, I bet you're an eight. <laughs> well, eights kind of give themselves away. Or like, hey, I know you're a four. Right away, you've never even said anything. It's like someone coming up to you you've never met 
and saying, I know everything about your personality. And Nathaniel's caught off guard and he says, how do you pretend to know me? You don't know me. I don't know you. And Jesus says, well, remember that time you were under the fig tree and you can see Nathaniel's face just drop. Now, we don't know what was going on by that fig tree. We don't know what he was thinking about. We don't know what he was doing, but Nathaniel does. And I bet it was such a profound moment for him, a private moment, an intimate moment. Maybe he was bearing his soul before the Lord. No one else in his life knows about it. And Jesus says, I saw you. I heard you. And Nathaniel, like the penny drops. And he says, you really are the son of God. One moment he's going, how do you come off? The next moment he's going, all my honor and devotion I give to you as the son of God. Whatever happened under that fig tree, the fact that Jesus saw it and knew it was enough to break through all of the barriers of unbelief that Nathaniel had. And then Jesus told him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see what Jesus did? He reached all the way back into Genesis 28, what we've just been studying right now. And he says, Nathaniel, you're a good Jewish boy. You remember your Bible. You remember that stairway that Jacob saw with the angels coming up and going down? He said, that's me. I am the son of man and I am the stairway. Don't you see, friends? It's a stairway that's not a stairway because the stairway is a person. It's none other than Jesus Christ Friends, the reason you and I don't need to climb the steps to God, the reason that God can forgive sinners like you and me is because Jesus is the stairway. He is the steps. When Jesus came on this earth, he walked in our steps. He fulfilled with every one of his steps all the requirements of the law. He did the steps. He lived the life that we should have lived but have failed to live. And then in going to the cross, he died the death in our place for you and me. He paid the penalty that was ours. That's why Jesus is not just another prophet come to show the way to God. He came to be the way. He is the stairway. That's why his other name is Emmanuel. Why? God with us. Just like the Lord came down to be with Jacob, Jesus came down to be with us. You notice Jacob didn't see many stairways. And behold, I saw a vision of heaven. There were multiple stairways all going up to God. No, because there aren't multiple stairways that get to God. You don't get to choose the pathway and the stairway of your preference that all happen to lead to God. There is one God who descended to the depths to meet a bunch of nobodies in our nothingness. There is one God who fulfilled every step because he knew if it was left to us, we would never be able to climb our way to God. We wouldn't even make it past the first floor. There is one way to God and there is one God who comes to us and his name is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God. And one mediator, one stairway between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the stairway to heaven 
full stop. You need to believe that to get to heaven. Not merely on a cognitive level, but at a soul level. And when you believe that, you'll see it begins to change every aspect of your life. If you're looking for a piece of tangible application as you walk out of here today, it's this. Be overwhelmed by the grace of God. I think we get comfortable with it. I think we get complacent with it. I think we forget it all the time in thousands of different ways. I think the reason why we don't pray much, I think the reason why we don't read our Bibles, I think the reason why we don't give, we don't serve, we don't share the gospel is because we've become comfortable with the grace of God. It is not an overwhelming place in our life. For some, maybe today, the first step is to begin your journey of faith like Jacob. We're going to look more at his story in the next couple of weeks, but it's not like his, his life changes overnight. He is going to continue to be a stumbling, bumbling idiot. But his future is incredibly bright and anyone can get in on it. Other, for some of you today, maybe you need to have your love for God rekindled. You need to remember that it was God who found you when you were nowhere with nothing. And yet he came all the way down to meet you. And when you're overwhelmed by the grace of God, we, you will see every aspect of your life change. You're going to pray like you've never prayed before. You'll read your Bible like you've never read it before. You'll share your good news with people all around you, like Philip who said, come and see. You'll see your life driven by the kind of gospel gratitude that becomes to drive and inform every single decision that you make. Friends, there is a stairway to heaven. There is a way to get to heaven. But it's not do good and work hard. There's a place for those things, but they don't get you up one floor on the stairway. And don't for one second believe that God could never and would never come down to meet you. Jacob's story, like everyone else, is a story of pure grace. He loves to come down the stairs to meet nobodies with nothing. There is a stairway that leads to heaven. And thank God by his grace, we don't have to build it. We don't have to climb it. We don't deserve it. And thank God it's Jesus Christ. Let's pray.